I think there's a temptation in apologetics to be a know-it-all. Welcome, everyone, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. I'm Mike Gomer Gormley, and I'm doing a fancy interview today with Father Gregory Pine, OP of the Thomistic Institute, OG OP. Uh, the Thomistic Institute is bringing Catholic truth in a contemporary world by strengthening the intellectual formation of Christians at universities, in the church, and in the wider public square, and is an academic institute of the pontifical pontifical faculty of the Dominican House of Studies in D.C. Father Gregory, welcome. Hey, thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here on this fancy interview. Yeah, yeah, it's so fancy. Uh, <laughs> and also, uh, people will know you from uh, Matt Frad's podcast, uh, Pints with Aquinas. You are a frequent co-host on there. How often do you guys do that together? Uh, we do it twice a month. And yeah, and then I just started a podcast with some Dominican brothers because why not? Because if you don't have yeah, why two podcasts, then what are you doing in your life? <laughs> As a white male, you are morally required to have podcasts. Everyone wants it. So tell us about your mansplaining podcast. Oh, wait a second. You just, you just it shoehorned it in. Yeah, so it's called Godsplaining because it's not mansplaining. Check it out. Because the Lord, you know, speaks to us in an abbreviated word. He condescends to us, but in a way that's not condescending. So, oh, uh, I love that. yeah, it's pretty sweet. Uh, so you also are an alum of my alma mater. Mm. You graduated from FUS in uh, 2010. That's right. And, huh? I said that's right. Yeah, that's all I oh, said. Oh, I think you said 20. And I was like, <laughs> you graduated in 2020? Wait a second. I've been lied to my whole life. No, uh, you profess your simple vows, which I found out for a Dominican. That's the special one. Mm. Uh, in 2011, and you were ordained, ordained in uh, 2016. That's awesome. What? Uh, how do you experience the discernment of religious life? Just going off. I, everyone asked me about discernment. Yeah. I don't know how to talk about discernment. I dated a woman, and I broke up with her six times because I was discerning the priesthood. And then the last time i broke up with her she had the nerve to not immediately get back together with me and then that sent me into three months of sorrow it ended with a marriage and four kids but there was sorrow there. so how did you discern religious over diocesan yeah so my the the thumbnail sketch is i think that you discern your vocation the way that you discern your best friend uh it kind of just happens so i think that if you've made like an excel spreadsheet where you're comparing the relative merits of different states of life, um, then you're probably thinking too hard about it. And you're like, wait a second, you mean that I should think less hard about it? And then you begin thinking harder about thinking less hard about it. <laughs> and then you're like, oh no. Um, so I think I'm that- I'm caught uh, in a vicious loop. Exactly, it's, it never ends. Um, I think that the Lord gives grace and that that grace takes concrete shape in your life in the form of particular virtues. So, you know, like some saints are especially courageous, like St. Jean de Brébeuf, or some saints are especially joyful, like St. Philip Neri. I think that um, when you find certain virtues coming to like kind of prominence in your life, those virtues suit you, like they kind of suit you for a particular thing. So with religious life, you know, like I really wanted to preach. I really wanted to study. I really wanted to give myself whole and entire to the Lord to do great things worthy of great honors because they were great to be perfectly charitable, etc. And then I encountered the witness of St. Thomas Aquinas and I was like, whoa, this guy, check him out. Uh, so, Love him. So yeah, the Lord just stirs certain things up in your heart. And then when you see it, you recognize it. That's my general approach. 
Okay. What do you say to people who feel like they missed their vocation? I would say that I talk I talk often with young men who are like, I don't know if I'm called to be a priest, but I'm engaged <laughs> to this woman and I feel awful and I don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there are a lot of obstacles that come up because we overthink things. Okay, that's not just to like mansplain. But um, okay. what, what do I mean by that? So I think that you don't really have to discern marriage in general. I think that, you know, a man is attracted to a woman and he thinks she is beautiful or I would like to kiss her or we are very good friends. And um, I think that we could be very good friends for a very long time. Or I would love it if my children were programmed with her strengths and weaknesses. Um, and that's I would love to commingle <laughs> DNA into another human person that has most of her skills, especially her looks. So, um, so I think that, you know, because because marriage basically is everyone's called to marriage, you know, in the garden, everyone was called to marriage. And after the fall, most everyone is still called to marriage. And that's not because like the Lord's like, oh man, I'm exhausted calling people to religious life in the priesthood. Let me just like get a few people out of the way. Okay, marriage, 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 marriage. Okay, now let's like devote my attention. That's not the reason. The reason is because that's the ordinary course whereby grace is communicated. You know, like you're supposed to be assigned to each other of the Lord's love and that's actually sanctifying. And then you make holy kids. That's the hope. Um, so for a guy who thinks that he's missed his vocation, I, th I think sometimes what he's thinking is like, I'm really attracted to this woman. I really want to marry her. She's wonderful. She's beautiful. Everything's great. When I think about the priesthood, it causes me like distress, sorrow, anxiety, pain, all the above. But maybe that's what I'm called to because the Lord wants me to do something difficult because difficult things are the best things. And therefore, maybe I should break up with her and go through this excruciating process of discernment and subsequently twist myself in a knot and then find out it was all wrong. So I think that's a bad way to go about it because I think that the Lord wants us to be happy. And that's not just like follow your desires willy-nilly and do what feels right. Follow Live your best your life. Bliss. <laughs> follow your um, but I think that like, you know, if you're using the sacrament of confession, if you're receiving Holy Communion worthily, if you've got good friends who are able to tell you like, hey, this is what's up. Um, you know, if you're studying the faith, if you're doing the kinds of things that that make for a healthy and happy Catholic life, then you can trust what it is that you want. And you don't have to double think all the time. Like, maybe I'm being tricked because the Lord is not creepy and he's not a trickster. <laughs> right. He wants you to be happy. And he's like all of creation conspires towards your happiness. That's that's just the very nature of providence. So that's what I would say. But doth not the prophet say, uh, you duped me, O Lord, and I let myself be duped? <laughs> oh, did I just refute you with an appeal to authority? Check this out. Okay. So a little reading there from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Yo, you ready for this word trick? All right. If you like romance languages, you will notice that in like Spanish, Italian, the word there is seduce. You have seduced me, O Lord. In Latin, taken from the Vulgate, the verb is seducere, which literally means lead to oneself. Okay. So we have a negative connotation with seduce because, you know, we associate it with like a paramour who's like, you get it. Um, yeah. but with the Lord, <laughs> the Lord can draw us to him, to himself in a way that's not creepy. And that actually is more natural to us than, uh, our own natural like inclinations. So the Lord can work interiorly. The Lord can work sweetly and strongly in such a way as to draw us to him by the giving of grace because he's the very maker of our will. So I don't think we need to worry about being duped by the Lord or seduced by the Lord because when he does so, he draws us to himself, which is in fact our happiness, our greatest happiness. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good <laughs> <laughs> the Douay Rames renders it as deceived. Oh, deceived. check that out. Yeah. Okay. I can oh. see that too. Mm, look, look at it right there. Well, the Douay no, Rames so is a translation the... of a translation. So, ha. 
Yeah, yeah there it is. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is the Thomistic Institute does an incredible job really clearly teaching what the church teaches. Yeah. And that's why I love you guys. That's why I attempt my very best to listen to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to, but I, I described it online as, or I described it once as, it seems like someone put the microphone inside someone's dinner plate <laughs> during dinner, and then it was taken by the busboy into the other room. And I just keep hearing clanking of dishes <laughs> in a separate room. <laughs> hey. What is that? Doors opening, closing, there's a dog barking. <laughs> I, I try what? to... I try to give an excuse, but it would all just be paper thin. So I'll tell you Fair this. Enough. We're trying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what, what, is, what are y'all doing at the Thomistic Institute that is in particular bringing Catholic truth into universities? So I think that at a lot of universities, the kind of assumption is that Christianity is not a going concern. It's not really a viable intellectual option because it's been debunked. It's been refuted. I was just, uh, I made a couple of campus visits. One of them was the University of Utah. And you have there a lot of Mormons and then a lot of people who were Mormons. And whenever Christianity is talked about at the University of Utah, it's just basically talked about in terms of Mormonism. And so people think it's crazy because there's not a very high esteem for a kind of faith and reason dialogue in Mormonism. And then from there, I went to the University of Oregon, which is basically pagan as far as I can tell, because if you live in a place as beautiful as Oregon, you cannot help but be seduced by its loveliness. And so a lot of people there are just entirely post-Christian, like haven't, have never opened the Bible, have no conception of what the Bible is. It's wild. And so Christianity at these places just, it just isn't a going concern. It's not a viable intellectual option. And so a lot of what we're doing is just, uh, you know, proposing simple themes like faith and reason or like grace and free will or like, <clears throat> you know, the Trinity, for instance, and proposing them in a way that is clear, um, that is compelling, and that makes use of the church's intellectual resources to show basically that, that the things that you're studying, you know, whatever it be, cultural anthropology or evolutionary biology, that they have something to gain from being in conversation with Christianity because the church's tradition is deep and wide and it thinks seriously and beautifully about what is. And so, yeah, this can be brought to bear on whatever your respective competency is. And if it's not, oftentimes those things will become ideological, like they'll become very, I don't know, kind of militant in their anti-religion. And uh, that can ultimately yeah, just be really destructive for uh, a student at a university. Yeah, man. On top of the militant atheism, the the disregard for Christianity as a viable intellectual thing, you're also battling the red solo cup lifestyle, uh, <laughs> the, the drunken debauchery that turns a university studies into a consumer good, yeah. right? Like I'm buying, I'm paying these tens of thousands of dollars every year to drink a lot of beer to barely go to class and to hook up with as many people of the opposite or same sex as humanly possible. And it's such a train wreck morally that, um, and I keep coming back to this, like the most progressive institutions in America are like our state universities, especially on the coasts. Right. And yet, and yet that's the place where the most, um, you know, supposedly the most sexually liberated from the moors of the past and the traditional patriarchy. And yet that's where you have the most violence against women, the most cases of, you know, rape and sexual assault and all this stuff. And I'm like, guys, morality is good medicine, right? <laughs> like morality, 
morality actually works. Um, I have a friend who wrote a book called Chastity is for Lovers, Arlene Spensley, and she wrote about being a, a virgin in 30 and not, you know, dying of her virginity. And she gave it to a like hardcore radical feminist. Um, I think she she was like a book reviewer or um, um, maybe like she had a radio show or something. And the woman thought it was the most empowering message for women that she's ever heard. Uh, and <laughs> it was just like, yeah, don't give in because that's what they want. Like, yeah, yeah. And it's like, this is not a novel concept. <laughs> but um, it is novel in a post-Christian world. Yeah. And it's so fascinating. I, I talk about um, – I've said this before on this show, how when I was growing up, you know, class of 2000 as a high school student, when I was growing up, to live the Christian sexual ethic was considered maybe extreme, but heroic. Now, to live the Christian sexual ethic is considered bigotry. Hmm. It's not just like, wow, you know, like, I'm not going to stop sleeping with my girlfriend, but you, like, wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah, save sex for marriage. Wow. Now it's like, how dare you put your, you know, like, even, even and, and people don't understand that difference. And it just gets magnified in college where you're actively encouraged with no kind of counterbalance um, that to indulge in these things. So what, what kind of results are you seeing in terms of engagement with the culture at uh, these Thomistic Institute events? So I think um, a lot of it's kind of anecdotal <clears throat> because outcomes assessments are difficult to do when it comes to like collecting data as to, you know, like how this changed. But certain things that we've kind of kept a tab on are people who convert, you know, so people who enter RCIA, um, people who change their major from something that may not be kind of wisdom driven to something that is wisdom driven. Um, and that people who kind of like get involved in our programming and then subsequently tell us their story. So I just think of like particular individuals, like a young woman at Yale who is, uh, just an excellent young woman. And she came there because, she originally was between Yale and Catholic University. She really wanted to go to Catholic University, but she got into Yale. And she so she felt like almost beholden to go there because here is a place with excellent academic prestige and were she to pass in the opportunity, it'd be silly. So she went, but then her freshman year was just kind of, I don't know, bewildered by the campus culture and found it very disorienting. But then she found a spiritual home in the parish there, St. Mary's in New Haven. And then she found an intellectual home in the Thomistic Institute. And so she's been the chapter leader and um, she's just super solicitous. And for her, the thing, the thing that's most impressive is that she's not duty driven. She doesn't like, you know, okay, here's a thing that I must do because others have laid upon my shoulders, their expectations. It's because she is so motivated by the intellectual evangelization of her peers that like on her own steam, she's playing conferences. Like she, she requested the, you know, the, the privilege to plan a conference and plan a conference for her students, which is super great, really successful. And a lot of people came to and enjoyed and were challenged by. This is a place where, you know, the good life is a, is a kind of going concern in the psychology department. It's one of the most popular classes there. And uh, she had a conference on the theme, but proposed it in a way was that was that was challenging to her peers. You know, to enjoy a good life is to enjoy the Lord. You know, it's to yeah. have a life shaped by contemplation, by worship, by prayer, by friendship, by all of these things that kind of fall out of the equation when we talk about it just in terms of being like um, well-adjusted, having sufficient coping mechanisms and having your material needs met. Um, so yeah, for her, it's a matter of affinity. Like I remember having had a conversation with her about a year ago and she was just like 
almost at her wit's end. She's like, why don't they see it? Why don't they see it? They could be happy if they were just to, you know, it's like a line out of the gospel. It's incredible. Um, so I think, uh, you know, like I think also about the graduate politics department at, um, at Harvard, you know, the, you have kind of Harvey Mansfield in the background. So there's some, some cool intellectual life, uh, some, yeah. some really excellent folks in that department, but, but a lot of people have been becoming Catholic there. And a lot of it is through these, these people with whom we've been in contact, um, and I think I was just at uh, West Point and the, the faculty sponsor there, Captain Sally White, she was in the politics department there. She came in contact with these women who run the graduate chapter. She and her husband converted to the faith. You know, it's really like influenced the trajectory of her own life. And yeah, it's just I mean, a lot of it's just really awesome to see. So my, my job is cool because I visit all of these campuses and I get to know these people. Um, and so for me, it's just kind of like. Yeah, I say that my job is I'm a hype man, uh, but also my job is just to be edified by the really powerful witness of a lot of lay folks on college campuses who are doing exemplary work. Yeah. How would you define a post-Christian culture? Because we talk about that a lot on this show, because you got to understand the context towards which we're bringing the gospel. And it's not the same thing as a pre-Christian culture. It's different. Yeah. But there are a lot of similarities between Christianity and between a pagan culture. Um, uh, we like to say that it's like the kingdom without the king. Like there's, <laughs> you're, you're not going back to the pagan um you know, fear of, you know, hyper superstitious fear of the demonic elements and the spirits and all this stuff. Um, but, and we're also not returning to an honor and shame culture, right? Like the type of, uh, you know, warrior spirit led, although there's elements of that, um, you know, we try to be a more just and compassionate society in a lot of ways that is an explicitly Christian thing introduced into the world through the gospel. And now it became so part of the culture that now we've gotten rid of Christ, but we kept some of the projects, although heavily distorted in the progressive kind of kind of way. So how do you think of the post-Christian world? So, yeah, a lot of things that you could say. <clears throat> I was just chatting with somebody and he had a professor who whenever some like overarching question would ask was asked in class, he would say, "It all starts with Parmenides." <laughs> um, who for those at home was like a I don't know, maybe a 5th century BC philosopher and we just have fragments of his writings, but whatever, that's not important. Um, in this case, I would isolate one thing would be in a post-Christian culture, there is no longer any real or thoroughgoing commitment to truth. So when we talk about truth in a Christian sense, it's very much informed by our understanding of and love of the Lord. So the Lord himself is the truth, the truth incarnate. Truth himself speaks truly, else there's nothing true. So we have we have this notion that, that things are true to the extent or to the degree that they reflect God's plans for their life, you know, like we can grow into the truth of our own lives, but also like we, we have minds that are capable of the truth. So we can see things and we can say like, this is true. Um, or we can make a judgment about them and say, this is true because we realize that there's a kind of fit between our minds and then what's out there in the world. But I think, I think the present post-Christian culture is utterly unconcerned with that claim. It doesn't really care what's on offer nor does it really care that our minds be shaped by what is true uh, or by what is. Rather, it's all a matter of advocacy, of suasion, of protest. Like it's a, it's a kind of sheer assertion of will. So 
you know, like the will cannot be conditioned by whatever, like moral formation. It can't be conditioned by the pressure of others. It can't be conditioned by law. It can't be, you know, like we want our wills wholly unconditioned. So that way we can just opt for whatever we want. And we know that we are successful to the extent that we convince others that what we have chosen is right, that there's no shame to be attached to it, that it's something to be celebrated. Um, so I think that like oftentimes when we engage with other people, in a post-Christian culture, we think that they have a basically Christian mentality. Like we'll say things and we can share ideas. Like I'll, I'll say these words and these words will register as, you know, like they'll kind of register in your heart as something to be assented to, but that's just not the case. When people hear us speaking, what they hear is kind of like violence of a certain sort or an attempt to discourage them from their otherwise liberated plans. And so oftentimes we have to find a far more remote common ground or just work in, in like a lot simpler language because there is such a heightened sensitivity to anything of this sort. Wow. Wow. And talk about all the pre-evangelization that has to go into that. And, you know, it's fun listening to you. I'm like trying not to nerd out for the sake of our audience on all of the things you said like exactly that's what Alistair McIntyre's uh, whole presentation on Kierkegaard this absolute <laughs> choice between the ethical life and the being a knight of faith and like I just want to nerd out there but um, <laughs> but I won't audience this won't be a journey down to Mystic Lane um, yes it will but one of the one of the things is like we talk about pre-evangelization Right, like setting the stage so that the gospel can even have a hearing, and that's yeah. what you're talking about. Like, it, it, it I mean, I, I just think of the people who walk down the street saying, you know, repent, you're all gonna go to hell. Like, not only are you not earning a, you're not earning a hearing, you're not making a way for the gospel, but it's a presentation that is inherently um, self-aggrandizing. Yeah. And no one, you know what we say, a pride, like you people are full of themselves, right? And uh, humility is the exact opposite, the emptying of yourself so that Christ can fill you. And so if we're going to make Christ compelling to people, we can't do it while being self-aggrandizing, right? You have to empty yourself the way Christ emptied himself. I and mean, St. Paul says, have within yourself this attitude, which is yours in Christ Jesus, you know, who deem not equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself. And that whole movement for evangelists, like the the humility of taking the time to study the culture towards which we are speaking, right? Like if I'm coming to people who think that the very understanding of Christianity, I love how you said it, is like an act of violence against them and the sheer assertion of their will to be and to become and to make themselves into whatever whomever or whatever gender they want at, at at their own willing because they will it like is such a shocking reality it's like an alternate reality you know from us as catholics where we're like yes the world is there's this thing called reality and the measure of sanity is as close as i can get my brain to that reality like to knowing what is true and we live in a culture that is like what's true Come on, come on. Like, you, I mean, there's there's so little ground. And yet we still have universities which are dedicated to the pursuit of truth. <laughs> We're bouncing around the most absurd. It's like this one um, moral relativist, a woman who, she's not a philosopher. She is a, uh, what is she, a cultural anthropologist, I think. And she's a hardcore moral relativist. I can't remember her name. And uh, 
I was listening to this story where she goes from she does a lot of work with the UN uh, in countries abroad, especially countries that are dominated by a patriarchal society, and you know women are not allowed to get education, all this stuff. And she constantly imposes her view on these cultures. And someone in a debate was like, "How can you justify that? You're imposing your culture." And she goes, "No, I know. It's just I think my culture is better." And they're like, "But how? If it's all relative?" And she says, "I don't care." I just think mine's better. So it's like, whoa, it is literally just an emotional attachment. But I think somewhere in the back of her mind, she thinks it's better because it's truer. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, <laughs> that's complete absurdity of these people. I don't. So there's a long road to hope. So apologetics. <laughs> apologetics. I don't know about you, but I used to think that evangelization was about arguing with people into mm. the kingdom. Turns out no one followed me into the kingdom. Mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so how have you seen apologetics work? Yeah, so I think and that... not uh, work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've had plenty of experience with it not working. I have one kind of instance in my mind. I was on my way to church on the... It was the Easter Vigil. I went. I served at this parish in uh, Southeast D.C. in Congress Heights. And I got off the metro and I had like a mile to walk to the parish. And this guy stopped me and said... Um, you know, do you believe in the, or is art like, are you saved? Or like, do you believe in the Lord Jesus? And I remember thinking like, all right, here we go. You know? Um, and we had this kind of back and forth and the guy knew his scripture well, and he was of a non-denominational Protestant stripe. And he had like a lot of challenging questions for me. And I was kind of actually embarrassed by how poorly I answered some of his questions. And I felt really just kind of dissatisfied with the conversation because it was an argument, and um, I don't think that I, yeah, acquitted myself admirably. And at the end, I asked him to pray, and he said no, because he said um, the Catholic understanding of mediation is polytheistic, and so he would not pray to Jesus with me because he didn't trust me to pray to the right Jesus. And it was just like a really devastating experience for me, um, but it did bring before my eyes certain kind of like foundation stones or essential elements in any fruitful conversation about the faith. One of which was, it's good to pray, you know, like it's kind of good to pray at the outset. And that's not like anytime you have a conversation with somebody, whether it be in a bus terminal, you know, like, or in an Uber, you know, if you are an Uber pool person, which I am, um, it doesn't mean that you have to say like, all right, step one, let us together pray. Would you like to lead or should I? Um, but it is to say that like, you should, you should ask the Holy Spirit because, um, you know, without that assistance, your words will fall flat. You can have every guarantee that they will fall flat. And then the second thing is to establish common ground. And I think a lot of times when we say that people hear it and it seems almost patronizing. Yeah, let's like find common ground, you know, like yeah. together we can make some cupcakes, you know, and we can frost them together. And then after we've spent two and a half hours in the church kitchen, then we can talk about ecumenism. It's like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> You're one step away from using the word dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, what I'm talking about is like, what do they take as a principle? Uh, because oftentimes we assume that um, that our principles just are commonly held, like the one about, you know, truth, that I think that yeah. the truth is when your mind is shaped by reality. But a lot of people don't think that. And so like in conversations with Protestants, for instance, what do you take to be an authority is a very helpful question. And I think that the third thing is that the only effective witness is an interpersonal witness. And um, I read a little bit of uh, Eleanor Stump, and she talks a lot about second person knowledge. So it's like the kind of knowledge that you have, the, the certainty that you have when you look somebody else face to face, right? It's a kind of connection. And this isn't to be like strange or mystical about it. But it's like when you say you addressed to another person, there's a kind of knowledge that comes with that. 
And that what you're trying to establish in that conversation isn't like, you know, an appeal to some third thing, right? But you're trying to establish a friendship in which it is possible to gain a hearing and in which it is possible to preach, you know, that Jesus is Lord, that he suffered, died, and rose from the grave, and that he imparts grace to all those who would receive him because he does not want you to perish apart from him, but can make you happy beyond your wildest imagining with him forever in the kingdom. Um, but that just sounds like, it just sounds silly unless it's it's testified to you by somebody like who cares for you. So I'd say like, kind of like starting apologetics, and this is the beginning of a longer conversation, but starting apologetics, you know, to pray, um, to establish principles and to have kind of like to, to, to aim for second person knowledge or to ground it in a relationship. Those are the types of things I think that, um, that save you from arguing yourself out of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> cause it is funny cause people who have a more intellectual conversion need meat to sink their teeth into. Yeah. And oftentimes a good argument might be the thing to say, wow, I didn't realize there was anything there. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I didn't realize that, that Catholics had, a, you know, a, a good reason for believing in Scripture and, you know, all these people in Jesus land actually do care about rational argument and stuff like that. That's one thing, and that's part of getting to. I we always emphasize always emphasize this. The relationship allows you to to discern this stuff. Like if you don't know anyone, I mean, there are plenty of opportunities to walk up to someone you don't know, and if you feel really led by the spirit, prompted. You can start a conversation, just lean into it. But there are times when it is, uh, let me just say, it is a far better thing to build a relationship with the person and from that relationship be like, yeah, this person just needs, they're very argumentative. They need a good argument, right? Or, you know, I shouldn't be combative. I should back off because obviously getting combative just makes him defensive and he doesn't want to listen. Yeah. Um, and you can't know that unless you're with the person. And I think especially the danger of online apologetics mm -hmm. It's just the trading of my paragraph versus your paragraph and my combox statement to yours. And, you know, up, I'm, I'm up late because someone's wrong on the Internet, you know, kind of idea. And it drives me insane. So um, going from that, what about uh, the role of virtue in evangelization? We were talking a little bit about before the show. What do you mean by virtues are for action, poised to do and not just think? Yeah, sure. So I think that. um so maybe to draw an analogy, my second, so my second year of theological formation, the summer that followed that, we would, uh, we'd have our, our Spanish summer, our kind of uh, opportunity to learn Spanish well enough to be of service to the Spanish speaking community in our parishes. And um, the words that were sometimes used were pastoral fluency. And I think what was meant by that is like, you have to be fluent enough to celebrate mass um, to perform certain rites of the church, to hear confessions. But what I came to discover is that there's really no such thing as pastoral fluency, right? Because in order to hear confessions well, to give good counsel, you need to basically be fluent. At the very least, you need to be proficient. So it's not like, you know, memorize these 150 church terms and then learn how to conjugate a star and then you're ready to rock. It's like, no, no, you need a, you need a lot more. Um, and I think with apologetics, there's a similar logic that needs to be kind of deployed. It's not sufficient just to know, you know, uh, the five ways for God's existence or to have a bunch of biblical proof texts for papal infallibility or papal primacy or for, you know, the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Like if you have one of those placards that just gives you all of the texts that you need whereby to refute, you're not necessarily going to gain any traction because the person may just as well be turned off by your kind of smug know-it-all disposition. And so, um, like what you need is to be a virtuoso, right? You need to have the kind of facility where 
think here of like a jazz musician. It's not enough just to know the rudiments. The rudiments give you a kind of freedom so that when you get in there in a room with a bunch of different jazz musicians, you can extemporize in a way that's seamless, delightful, and, and rich. And so you want to have the same kind of capacity when it comes to engaging with your contemporaries. And so, you, you know, it's, a, it's about cultivating habits of mind and heart that dispose you well to this. Yeah, um, and just to jump in there, that's why at Franciscan, I was a philosophy theology double major as an undergrad and then a theology major as a grad student and not catechetics, not knocking catechetics at all. I took all my pastoral classes um, in grad school as catechetics because I needed the skills on lesson planning, all that stuff. But I literally laid out the the course requirements and all the extra classes. And I was like, I'd rather take texts of Hansers von Balthasar than I would catechetical saints. I mean, I'm sure that's a great class, but I feel like to speak to my audience, I needed to know as much and as broad as I could. Yeah. And if I was a good teacher already, then I could just take these skills classes and craft an even better environment. And now if you're a terrible teacher, you need to double up on those skills classes. Yeah. Um, but uh, the whole idea of like being a virtuoso, like I, I just had a guy yesterday say to me, how long does it take for you to prepare a lecture on like the Eucharist for high school students or for – you know, adults or whatever. And I was like, uh, just no time at all. Like I just, cause I know the stuff, right. And I've given talks on it enough that I can pull from the same kind of rhetorical devices that I use and analogies and, um, you know, scriptural references that you can kind of make it come alive and all that stuff because you're learned. You don't need a, if they say this, then you say that. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I, <laughs> I do like the fact that you reference those placards of scripture verses because i used to have one and i would try to commit them to memory those are more for you just learning not for an actual conversation yeah yeah, yeah. yikes yikes so uh i see behind you mm -hmm. oh no no you finish you finish and then i'm going to talk about the book behind you okay perf um so i think uh some virtues to kind of have in mind are certainly the intellectual virtues you know wisdom you want to see how things hinge together so you want to see how the articles of the faith are connected Right. So you don't just want to like assert, assert, assert in unconnected fashion, but you want to be able to say, OK, like, let's start with the Trinity. Let's work our way towards the redemption. I was once on a Frontier Airlines flight, which is always a harrowing experience because um, it's like <laughs> they, love them. they took God a perfectly good plane and then they gutted it and replaced all of the seats with folding chairs. But I was in seat. C and then there's a woman in seat D and then a couple in seats E and F and I was chatting with the, the couple in seats E and F kind of like talking over the woman in seat D for a bit and then the woman in seat D was like well you know my father just came out and is now living with his boyfriend like what do you have to say about that I was like let's go um, <clears throat> so you know you start what do you start with do you start with like the church's teaching on sexual morality I would say no I would say that you start with the triune God right and at the heart of all that is, you know, there is a father who begets a son and the father and son breathe forth the Holy Spirit in love and that, you know, communion is the very deepest identity of what it is to be. And then from there, you speak of God's desire to create as not so much him being constrained by need as him, you know, like having a secret too good to keep. You know, he creates us because he thought we might like it because we could partake of his love. And then you talk about the moral life as our way by which to kind of participate in this creative plan and the redemption and the sacraments as the way back. And and here you're like 15 minutes in and you've never mentioned homosexuality. Um, it was actually charming. The, the Like the lady in seat F was like, I have to stop listening to you or I'm going to have to become Catholic. I was like, nice, keep listening. <laughs> um, 
I have this great podcast called <laughs> yeah, exactly. the Jurassic Institute. You can only hear every third word, <laughs> but it's worth it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you have to show the, the things as interconnected. It's a wisdom. And then, you know, just to mention one other one, humility. Because I think there's a temptation in apologetics to be a know-it-all. And I think there are a few things that are less attractive. And this isn't, you know, again, this isn't just a psychological point. Because there has to be in the conversation a kind of openness to God's revelation. Because you're, you're beseeching that God speak in the interior life of this human being and that they receive it in faith. And you cannot impart faith. You can be used instrumentally by God to, you know, kind of open this other individual to the prospect, but you're not going to, you're not going to give divine things in the way that God gives divine things, except only as secondary and instrumental cause. So I think that there has to be a humility of your own place within God's plan of salvation and that that humility itself can kind of be attractive. Like when people say like, you know, couldn't all of this be made up? You know, it's like, yeah, I suppose it could. <laughs> but I have all of my eggs in this basket, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, uh, if it's not true, then I am dressed in a strange fashion and um, I am most to be pitied among men. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, just like wisdom. Even if it is true, you're still kind of dressed in it. Yeah, that's, yeah, excellent point. So, yeah, hey, I mean, just, seen, yeah. Have you seen the Netherlands Dominican proposed outfit? Oh, yeah, those things are incredible. <laughs> Yeah, it's like kind of a nouveau like chic. a lazy millennial wannabe superhero. <laughs> like I was going to make a superhero costume, but we'll just go with this instead. It's like sweatpants. <laughs> yeah, I just went shopping at Urban Outfitters instead. So, <laughs> <laughs> Really looking for my torn uh, torn Dominican habits, like those jeans. <laughs> don't get it bedazzled. <laughs> yeah, I don't see them getting any traction. But, you know, who's to say? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get on board here. Who's to say? <laughs> Everyone with common sense is to say. Oh, yeah, that's right. Anyway. Okay, my bad. <laughs> I'm fussy and have opinions. Um, okay, so, yeah, so the role of apologetics helps to break people and prepare, break their misconceptions, mm -hmm. helps to prepare the way for the gospel right. to be to be sown. When have apologetics gone too far? When have they, when is it time to actually introduce Jesus? How much... Or, or not just apologetics, but the preambles of faith. Sure. How long do we do that? Um, Dave famously has a story where he met a nun who was a part of a missionary order, and she was, you know, they were all in this community out in the, you know, with naturalist pagans in, in Africa, and she was telling them, you know, we're still at the pre-evangelization stage with them. And he was like, oh, wow, it's so fascinating. You know, like, and they had a whole systemization of how they did it. And he said, how long have you, you know, been there? He, him thinking like six months, eight months, and she's like, 27 years and he looked at her and he said like kind of disgust yeah <laughs> and he just said sister it's time if the, you're still at the pre-evangelization stage it's time to start becoming martyrs yeah. like what what are you holding back the gospel from you know kind of thing and when he said that i was like that literally changes how i do prison ministry yeah like I need to do pre-evangelization. I'm sitting with this man, the, these group of men at this table. I'm hearing them. I'm responding to their objections. You know, one guy sitting next to me, extremely intellectually gifted, challenged me on all these things, but he needed prayer. And so even though he said he's an atheist, I, when I had my little holy half hour during the retreat, he came over and sat next to me and we prayed, right? And he's like, I still don't believe in this stuff. I was raised Catholic. I don't believe in this stuff, but... If this is true, then this is the place where I need to be right now. And so even though intellectually he was pushed off, emotionally and uh, kind of through nostalgia, he was drawn in. 
So the worst thing to do would be give him an argument at that point, mm-hmm. right? And just to give him Jesus, to sit down in front of the Blessed Sacrament and and just pray with him. Yeah. Um, and then so so where do you find like okay, it's time to stop with the pre and dive into the kerygma. All right. So this is a non-answer, but I think it depends. And here I'm going to try to be more concrete and actually helpful and practical. Um, I think it depends on your relationship with that person and then that person's corporate relationship with Christians. So I think that um, a lot of these, you know, like a lot of interactions that you have with people are passing, but some are more substantive and over the longer period of time. And I think you can afford to be a little more patient in the latter case. But in the former case, I don't think there's any real reason to be coy right? So like, why hold back, you know, because what are you going to lose? Like a lot of people that I meet, I meet them for one day. I'm on a lot of college campuses for precisely one day. Um, So like, what's the point in like convincing them that I'm normal and charming? One, I'm not normal and charming. And two, who gives a rip? Um, So I think that like, it's more, it can be more efficacious in those circumstances to say, you know, like to to kind of pose a bold question and say, uh, yeah, like, I mean, what are your thoughts for the future? Are you thinking grad school? Are you thinking religious life? Just kind of mix it in there, you know, as a way by which to kind of, you know, get people thinking and like, what the, you know, and then you have something. Um, So you find a way by which to propose it that isn't, you know, kind of initially aggressive, violent and in your face, but that introduces Christ into the conversation. So that way he can be present. Um, Not that he isn't present except by your invitation, but that you can be present in a more explicit way. Um, There are other people in your life who they're going to constantly vex you when it comes to these things. And like the members of one's family, I'm very blessed to have a faithful family. So this for me is, you know, not a big deal. Um, But a lot of people, the the people who are least likely to listen to you are the people with whom you spend the most time, the members of your immediate family. And there it can be, it can be really trying. Like, what do I do? Because I seem constantly hypocritical and I don't know, you know, how to broach the subject because every time I do, I find myself shouting and then um, things get ugly. It's like, well, in those circumstances, I think you can afford to be more patient. But I think that we should never get comfortable with a situation in which the Lord is not proposed as a matter of course. Um, So it's like, it's kind of like the disposition to- Let's back that up. We should never be comfortable what'd you say with a conversation where the lord is oh gosh i've already lost it we, we should never yeah. be comfortable with a situation in which the lord is not proposed as a matter of course nice okay so analogy with like nfp for instance like a lot of people don't know how best to think of nfp and they're this is contentious you know but i think that the kind of the church's general disposition is that you should be open to life okay so that you should be open to life so um there shouldn't be a kind of you, you shouldn't go months and years on end thinking like, you know, we're, we're using infertile periods. We're not really having children at this point because of, and you just have a kind of settled disposition on the matter. It's like, well, we should be, we should be constantly proposing this question. This is something that we should be praying about. This is something that should, yeah. we should be entertaining because, because, you know, this is marriage is for life. It's for, you know, making new saints. Um, so too, in our kind of quote unquote pre-evangelization, I don't think that we should ever kind of get into a contraceptive mentality with, with the Lord, you know, because he begets life and he is meant to beget life and divine life should be shared. And who are you to get in the way? So I think, yes, it depends on individually how long you have with this person. And then corporately, how long the Christian community has with this person, because there's sometimes it's like you're on the frontiers and they're only going to hear it from you. There are other situations in which they have friends who are Christian who are working on them. And you should trust that the Lord can use other people besides yourself. And if you get overly aggressive, you might actually do damage um, so that you have to be cognizant of your place within the body. Right. So the eye does not begrudge the foot that it cannot walk, nor the foot begrudge the eye that it cannot see. So be content to be small and to play your part because you're not going to save everyone. Jesus is going to save everyone and he might use you in saving some. But uh, you should you know, we should be content to play to play our role. 
Did you just say Jesus is going to save everyone? Did you become a von Balthasarian? <laughs> Dare we hope? <laughs> Promotes. No, I mean, First Timothy two four. <laughs> God desires that all be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. So, mm, yeah, mm, He desires it. Um, I, I just want to also point out to all of our listeners who are, who are you know, turning away on their jazzercise machines and listening to this on their headphones how often you <laughs> it's so funny you were such a domist how often like you throw these little side comments out that are clearly distinctions that you need to make habitually as a domist <laughs> you're like you're like you know we want to invite god into the conversation not that god isn't present without your permission but in a more real way Annie, <laughs> like i love the constant distinction you will speak with clarity good sir hey cheers. um yeah, in an in an age of muddleness, you speak with clarity. Um, yeah, so I think I think all of this is great. I have so many questions. I think uh, I, how how long do I have you here? Can I ask you a couple more questions? Yeah, go for it. Okay, I'm going to ask you more questions. We're going to go a little bit longer, and I'm going to leave. This is a pints of the quietness now. I want to talk about morality. So one of the most common um, stratagems in uh, evangelization is avoid, avoid, avoid the moral questions. Yeah, because the world, the postmodern world doesn't agree on truth or goodness. So, you know, Bishop Barron, lead with beauty. Von Balthasar, you know, like lead with beauty. Um, and then the beautiful will lead to the good, which will lead to the true or, you know, vice versa. Um, but often what we find is like that Chesterton line, um, you know, we, a lot of us agree on what's evil should be, what things should be called evil, but not um, what evils will be acceptable. You know, what things are good and bad. There's all these arguments and all this division over morality. Mm -hmm. So often the advice is preach the kerygma avoid the moral questions, at least in the initial stage. So like, for instance, on contraception, don't get an argument with an unbeliever on contraception and why the Catholic Church says it, rather introduce them to the gospel. Yeah. Uh, introduce them to the person of Christ. Introduce them, like what you were saying, like introduce them to the Trinitarian life, the call to communion, the interpersonal um, union of, you know, being made in the image and likeness of such a God. But there are other people who are like, but the moral moral questions, moral debating, moral discussions, moral issues that come up in everyday life can be a bridge just as much as beauty, just as much as um, truth can. How how would you view the relationship of morality with the context specifically of evangelization? I say this because you have my favorite book of all time sitting on your back shelf. Is that so? And that is Father Survey Pinker's uh, Sources of Christian Ethics. Dig. I first encountered that in a uh, audio cassette series from Scott Hahn on the Sermon on the Mount. Nice. And he just walked through it. Walked through. No I was in high school at the time. He walked through nominalism, you know, um, Occam and all that stuff, and then went through Augustine on the Beatitudes and yeah. all that. And it was such an eye opener that I fell in love with morality, and I thought I was going to be a moral theologian. Like that's all I wanted to be. Hmm. When I find myself in the real world doing real ministry, um, not in uh, not just in settings that I create, but people coming up to me who are living broken lives, it's moral issues that you know my husband's porn addiction, right, um, is destroying our family. My anger issues is pushing my kids away. Um, I'm alone, and so I'm addicted to drugs or alcohol or opioids or all this stuff. There's so many moral issues that I think are perfect opportunities to bring the light of Christ into it. But some people like Bishop Barron talks about there's no use in telling someone about baseball, about the infield pop fly rule before you introduce them to the bat, the ball, the glove, the grass, the field, the bases. Um, and that's kind of what we do when we lead with 
whether we're talking about abortion or contraception or some moral teaching, you know what I mean? Like it can, we can kind of get lost, uh, lose the forest for the sake of the trees, or maybe those trees can become an avenue to bring people into the forest. So how do you see the relationship of morality? Yes. So I think that, um, part of this is conditioned by the fact that I, you know, like preach at mass every day. And at least my last assignment, I was in a parish where, um, you know, you're preaching to the same people every day. <laughs> at a parish with my ex-girlfriend's uncle. Nice. <laughs> Father Martini. Good man. Cheers. Um, so <laughs> I think that, um, well, maybe, you know, like a little confession. I think priests are typically by disposition. They want to be like their people pleasers and can be a little bit cowardly as a result. So it can be discomforting for a priest to think about preaching about hard issues. And thus he feels hypocritical encouraging others to do so. Um, do priests need encouragement in this regard? Absolutely. Do we, could we stand to be a little bit more courageous? Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, so I think that, um, you know, like as it concerns abortion, I would always preach about abortion on the Feast of Holy Innocence and on the um, anniversary of Roe v. Wade. But I don't know that I would mention it much apart from that. I would make like kind of passing remarks as concerns um, marriage and the sanctity thereof, but like I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch a lot of other things because they didn't come up in the readings, and so I, w- yeah. I wouldn't think to, and I hadn't like planned my year in such a way to like cover the whole catechism, which is perhaps negligent. But okay, so that's like back, back kind of. That's just like a little confession to say that what I say here is conditioned by one's own weakness, with the recognition that when you touch these things, it's it's going to be t- it's going to be hard. It will often be hard. Um, that doesn't mean that one should shy away from hard things because there are virtues to be gained in engaging with arduous goods. Um, but I think that, um, it really will often depend on the human being. So I was talking to a person the other day who, um, would, so he would pray outside of an abortion clinic, um, kind of on a regular basis. And then he started trying to arrange to meet with the director of the clinic and then eventually got like weekly appointments. And then the director confided in him that he wanted to get out of the business. And then they wait, like they, they did it in such a way that they transferred the property to become a Catholic resource center, like all kind of under the hood. So that way the clientele was like shifted seamlessly into procuring abortions to like getting ultrasounds and then having pregnancy help. Super sneaky and super awesome. Wow. Yes. Yeah, really that is cool. incredible. Um, but, uh, but it was because this person was passionate about engaging with one very contentious issue, um, namely abortion. And I think that like you can gain, you can gain purchase, especially with abortion, you know, even contraception. There's like a lot, there's a lot of fruitful conversation to be had, but what we're experiencing at least in the last five years as concerns, same sex attraction and transgenderism, I think has a lot of people yeah. afraid, like has a lot of people very, very afraid. And, uh, we're nervous that if we were to treat those issues, that we would be not only lampooned, but like, like genuinely persecuted, potentially cut off from like legitimate avenues of blah, blah, blah. So, um, what do I think? I think that a lot of people are uncomfortable with their moral choices and that they are using their kind of convinced and strident language as a way of masking their deep, deep discomfort with their choices. And so they often throw up these arguments or their outrage as a smokescreen to distract from their their sadness, their anxiety, their abiding depression. So I think that uh, the key is to love, right? There's, <laughs> there's no greater strategy than love. And the key is to love those in a genuine way whereby you can actually communicate 
communicate your concern and then the lucidity, the clarity of truth. So when a person says like, I'm very comfortable, I'm very happy in my committed relationship. Well, you won't, you don't want to say like, well, you know, in same sex marriages between men, the, you know, like the instances of promiscuity are three times as high as between, you know, like different sex couples. And have you accounted for the fact that your husband is probably sleeping around as you speak and what you think is a contented happiness is actually a shell of a life. Like I wouldn't go there. Okay. Um, while some of that may be true. (laughs) (laughs) Did you just go there? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Maybe I did. Um, but I think that you want to be able to communicate like, okay, well, like how does this, like, how is it for you when you think about your Christian upbringing? You know, like, I'm sure that this didn't occur to you, um, as you were being raised and, and how does it compare with your experience of the church's law then? Like maybe what was your experience of the church's law or how was God, how were God's commandments communicated to you? And then you have a basis for a further conversation about the, like the very point of God's self-revelation, which is not to make the moral life difficult and depressive and to have you like constantly laboring under the burden of these just crippling expectations. But really like the new law, what is the new law? It's just the grace of the Holy Spirit poured into your heart whereby you can cry, Abba, Father. Because like in a lot of these situations, people have fathers that didn't love them and sordid sexual adventures that did not go as they had planned. And as a result of which they are carrying around wounds, the likes of which we have never seen. And so like what we can do is speak to them in love and address them in a way that in a way that actually shows a solicitude and a concern for how they have come to this point. Um, so I think that yes, it can be an entry. It certainly can be an entry. And I think it's it's to be done together with a charismatic approach. Um, but yeah, it's not something from which we should, as a matter of course, shy away from because yeah, there is there is fruit to be had there. How do you preach the kerygma from the pulpit, you personally? I preach the kerygma. So like one of my favorite things to say is that all of the deeds and sufferings of Christ save. So I focus especially on the mysteries of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just like to think about salvation as something that happens on the cross, I think is too narrow. The Lord is like, the Lord just is salvation. You think about the gospel of Matthew, whereby the Lord is like, he's, he's identified as the kingdom of heaven. Like, what do you expect in heaven? I think a lot of people expect to be bored because it's going to be eternal rest. But, but what we should expect is the dynamism of a perfect relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that actually like has us firing on all cylinders. You know, that's like the feeling right before you get to the summit of a mountain where you're kind of like exhausted and hungry, but you know, the next meal is going to be like devastatingly delicious. And the view that you are going to enjoy is going to be so majestic that it will captivate you in such a way that until your like sweat freezes on your back, you will not want to look away. And so I think that like to talk about it in terms of, yeah, to talk about it in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ, this, this is what we expect. This is what we hope for in heaven and that it is possible. And that heaven begins now and that the dynamism of that relationship is something into which we need grow. Right. That's like, that's just, I think that's just, that's where I begin. That's where I'm best disposed to, to introduce. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. Every every word and deed of Christ is salvific. That's what the catechism says. And it's from all the words and deeds of Jesus that that the sacraments get their their power, their strength, their grace. Yeah. You know, and when uh, you know, we kind of segregated just the cross and resurrection, right? Obviously, that is what accomplishes our salvation for us. But all of the things, you can't just it's his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, all of those. Um, and it's, it's beautiful because, you know, when I, so one of the statistics that we look at is like 70%, 70% of people who go through our CIA are no longer practicing as Catholics one year after they enter the church. Yeah. Seven zero. That's crazy. She Sherry Waddell. She said, you know, the current statistic is 50%, but the new studies are coming out. It's more like 70. And I began asking myself, like, why, why would someone spend a year learning how to become Catholic? Well, part of the feedback that I would get is. They don't teach 
a lot of places don't do a good job teaching the Catholic faith. So then you rely on DVDs, right? You rely on, and they're all, you know, well done. They teach good Catholic faith. But the thing that I was constantly finding was the cross was conspicuously absent from everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the resurrection of Christ was only mentioned when you had the topic of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, and then that's it. And people didn't see an inner continuity. And Frank Sheed talks about it in his book um, or his uh, speech that he gave to a bunch of Irish teaching nuns, Are We Really Teaching Religion? And uh, I wrote a paper on it and I titled my paper, Am I Really Writing a Paper? And the teacher took off five points. But uh, (laughs) whatever, whatever. It was funny. Uh, People are still laughing about it. Um, But in that he says people have like uh, Our Lady of Fatima, the Eucharist, baptism, uh, Friday fasts, uh, you know, uh, coming up with a penance for Lent, um, the Pope, uh, you know, the the, the tiara that the Pope wears, like all the different stuff. It's just kind of this jumbled mess that's out there. And Catholics don't have like this understanding of the hierarchy of truths, the organizing principles that make it into a living and vital unity. They see rules, they see lists of beliefs, they see, you know, they have a very extrinsic relationship to the Catholic faith. And when you look at the people coming into the RCIA, I, I keep asking myself for five years, I, I would tweak my curriculum over and over again. And I keep saying, what? would make them stay not just that this is historically interesting not that that not even that it's rationally convincing because we all know you can be convinced of a thing and do its opposite right but what would lead them to stay and the only answer i've been able to come up with is what pope john paul said in catechesi tridende an explicit and personal attachment to the lord jesus christ so if every ounce of what i teach does not scream the incarnate son of god then I have failed, I, I deeply believe, like if I can talk about the sacrament of baptism and I talk about matter and form and minister and recipient, I can give you an introductory, decent understanding of the sacrament of baptism. But if I don't talk about St. Paul in Romans 6, do you not know those of you who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? You know, and I don't connect it to rising out of the waters as being united with him in a resurrection like his, like I think it all falls short because baptism is my personal reception of what Christ accomplished for me once for all on the cross and resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it looks forward to the grace that of the, the glory that awaits for me. And you see this sitting right at the end of the catechism's intro to the sacraments, this amazing quote from St. Thomas Aquinas, where he said the sacraments, what is it, presuppose what happened before, namely the passion it or the paschal mystery. It can... Um, it demonstrates what's given to us, namely grace, and it anticipates what awaits for us, namely eternal glory with God. And when I saw that statement for the first time, I was like, this makes sense. This, the harmonizing principle is basically what Frank Sheets said. He said, the union of man with God and Christ Jesus. So teach them what those four things are. But you see, like, they all revolve around the Paschal mystery of Christ, the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, all of these things. If I can get them to fall in love with Jesus and then show how the church is from Christ and the sacraments are from Christ, then they'll want to stay, right? Get them to fall in love with the Eucharist. Why would they ever leave then? But you find like people, they know matter and form, maybe even not matter and form of the Eucharist, but they, uh, catechesis is so terrible in the US, um, but <laughs> they'll come out like 
a checklist mentality that's extrinsic knowledge. Okay, these are the things I had to know, and now I know it. Now my wife or my mother-in-law won't yell at me anymore, and I'm Catholic. I don't know. What are your thoughts on my five-minute diatribe there? <laughs> um, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please, and some more of number two. Yeah, exactly. Please, sir, may I have another? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think that um, something that is – lacking and something that could be done better and something that lies within our grasp is to present the faith as something coherent. So maybe maybe this is a way of kind of um, starting a conversation with folks who emphasize the way of beauty, right? When St. Thomas talks about beauty, he says that we call those things beautiful, which are um, whole, right? So they, they have a kind of wholeness to them. They have a kind of balance to them and they kind of they have a kind of splendor to them. Right. So we would call that tree beautiful, you know, right in the fall turn, which is symmetrical, which is tall, which is noble, which seems healthy, which limbs are well proportioned and which has a kind of radiance or clarity to it. And so I think that our catechesis should be beautiful, but with the kind of integrity and a kind of balance and a kind of splendor of truth. Right. So the truth itself can be beautiful. So we shouldn't have to draw a distinction. And I'm not saying these folks do between the true and the beautiful, because the truth, when conveyed in the way in which you describe, can itself be beautiful. And so you can show how all of this, you know, begins in God and ends in God. And we can see the circulation of all things as proceeding from him and returning to him. And that each of these different parts, which for us are broken out as units in our RCA class, they all relate back to the central mysteries which St. Thomas says are the Trinity and the Incarnation. So if you're not relating it back to the Trinity and the Incarnation, you're not relating it back to those things which are most essential. He reads this passage in in Hebrews 11. He says, In order to be saved, you have to believe that God exists and that he rewards those who believe in him. And he says that this is basically what you have there is that believe God exists, you know, the triune God, and that he rewards those who believe in him. He says this is demonstrated for us in the Incarnation, right, in the Passion, Death, and Resurrection of the Lord. And so effectively, the whole faith is about these things. And he says even the articles of the Creed, I think he enumerates 14 articles in the Creed. He says the articles of the Creed can be classed as about the triune God or about the Incarnation. So the whole faith is conspiring to communicate these two things. Why? Because we are invited by friendship with Christ into Trinitarian communion. And that's the very purpose for which we have come. That's what it means for us to live the image of God, because we have minds with which to know and hearts with which to love that are patterned off the very nature of God, but they can have God for their object. And we can actually know God with his own knowledge and we can love God with his own love such that we abide at the heart of God in a way where we need never fear loss or diminishment of that, you know, that, that beautiful vision, that, that great enjoyment. Um, And so if this were proposed and if all things were done in a deliberate fashion to link back to the Paschal mystery and to the triune God, then I think people would be far more, you know, well served in their study of the faith and their practice of prayer and the reception of the sacraments and all of the things that go into a, a happy, healthy, holy Catholic life. Uh, so the phrase from Plato, beauty is the splendor of truth, mm. right? Was the opening line of the worst best man speech I've ever given at a wedding. <laughs> I was just at a wedding for my nephew and we were talking and someone's like, why didn't you say something? And I was like, ah, I hate these things. <laughs> Everyone expects me to have the right thing to say all the time, always, because I like to talk about some stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was at a beautiful wedding, beautiful reception, and someone was talking to me and I said, the worst wedding toast I've ever given was at my best friend's wedding, super devout Catholics, you know, beautiful everything. 
the the their love was better than everything else because the chapel was a utilitarian chapel on uh, an air force base you know one of these multi-use spaces yeah, yeah. Uh, in uh, wichita falls at a nato air force base it was ugly it was rushed it was all these things but their love was awesome and so at the reception i <laughs> i said Plato says beauty is the splendor of truth and then like within 15 seconds I quoted Plato Aristotle and Aquinas and uh I it was just so muddling and terrible I it was it was so awful it was so awful but I forever remembered that quote beauty is the splendor of truth <laughs> and Veritati's splendor is one of my favorite documents uh, <laughs> so that's beautiful trinity and incarnation as the most essential how are we tying everything back to the Trinity and the Incarnation. You, O Catechist, O Evangelist, O DRE and Priest, tie everything back to the Trinity and the Incarnation. These are such good um, good things. I think that, um, I, yeah, I just think they're so incredible. Lastly, um, what we're going to do is do our five practical takeaways when we come back from this commercial break from our fine folks at Ascension Press. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, email us at eksb at ascensionpress.com, and we will be sure to ignore your email for weeks until we do an email show, and then we'll answer it too thoroughly. Um, <laughs> so that's, again, email us at eksb at ascensionpress.com. We'll be right back. I'm Jeff Cavins. I wrote The Activated Disciple because I know how easy it is to practice the faith and to study it, but what if we lived our entire lives without doing what we learned? God doesn't just call us to be students. He calls us to be disciples, to look and live like Jesus. If you yearn for a life that moves beyond just studying and believing, if you yearn to become an activated disciple, then this book is for you. The Activated Disciple teaches you how to take your faith to the next level so you can become an instrument for God to transform the world. To order The Activated Disciple, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. Welcome back, everyone. I love Ascension Press. Thank you so much for sponsoring this show. Um, we are back right now with Father Gregory Pine, and we are going to do our five practical takeaways. Here's the bonus. He pretty much thought of all of them by himself, <laughs> which is so wonderful because it takes the stress off of me in my otherwise <laughs> stressful life. Because uh, <laughs> priests don't do anything. I mean, you guys only work one day a week, right? That's right. <laughs> Six days of vacay. <laughs> father michael schmitz i've told this story before but father mike schmitz said uh we were talking about discernment and stuff and i told him you know my mom thought i was going to be a priest because she said i had priest hands <laughs> he said what that is the most absurd thing because he's mr like vocation director mode right and he's like it's the most absurd as if all priests have the same hands i go right uncallous and i've never done an honest day's work yeah that makes sense <laughs> and he was like he didn't think that was funny um okay so we're gonna go with number one five practical takeaways why don't you kick us off with the first one father uh, so I think a good thing is to add a section at the end of your adult faith formation class or at the end of your RCA class or confirmation prep or whatever, whether you're dealing with, um, you know, young people or young adults or um, adult students, but add a section at the end of each class that has them to relate the teaching back to the Trinity and 
the incarnation. So it might be, you know, you might be kind of stressed thinking about how all of these things relate back to the Lord. That's something that you can entertain in your own prayer, but pose it as a question to them. Um, so it becomes almost, um, yeah, it becomes a habit for them to think about, okay, we just had a class on baptism. How does that relate back to the Trinity incarnation? And then you hear their responses. You might hear a few and then you can help synthesize, um, but really leave it open to their ideas. So that way they're doing the kind of interior contemplative work about, or, or you know, gazing on the mysteries of, of God, uh, the triune God and his incarnate Lord, uh, just kind of as we had chatted about earlier in the episode. Awesome. Uh, number two, going along the same vein, uh, and I'm guilty of this, right? Um, the thing is, reach out, here's a little boldness, reach out to someone in the parish who already did RCIA, maybe last year, uh, adult confirmation, convalidation, but in the infant baptism, right? Reach out to someone who went through a process of kind of compulsory, right, formation, you know, and um, see if they are still active, right? Because it's often that for those of us who are DREs and adult faith formation people, it is so easy for us to, once, you know, they're through the classes, we kind of forget about them and move on and they're off our checklist. So reach out. If you're not, if you're just a lay person in a parish, maybe ask the DRE if you can uh, help with this um, going forward, like keeping them connected. Uh, so for the next one, uh, avail yourself of some resources from the Thomistic Institute. So like Gomer mentioned, we have a podcast where you can listen to excellent lectures uh, about the Trinity, about the Incarnation. You can just search for those on SoundCloud. The audio quality of some of them is good. Um, I can testify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can uh, testify to the last one I listened to, which was, did Jesus die for Neanderthals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. I loved that. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so a couple of cool things. If you're thinking about the Trinity and the Incarnation, we have this video program called Aquinas 101. Uh, you can find it at Aquinas101.com or just look it up on YouTube. And we've made already three videos on the Trinity. So one, a kind of introduction to the triune God, then one about the divine persons, and then one about the missions of the Trinity. I think, you know, all of them between six and 10 minutes, super delightful and helpful. And then we'll have videos coming out about uh, the Lord Jesus here uh, before too long, so you can stay posted on them. And then we were talking about preaching hard issues uh, for the priests who are listening. We have a conference for priests over the summer in July, and it's on the future of marriage. Father Thomas Petrie of uh, Social Media Fame, Father Ted from the NCBC, Father Bill Byrne, the Archdiocese of Washington, will be presenting on marriage in terms of like pastoral practice, theological formation, and the science that goes to back it up. Um, so those would be good resources from the Thomistic Institute to kind of fill out your study. Yeah, I love Aquinas 101. I signed up for that the day it came out. So I'm like, man, I really stink at explaining form. <laughs> we watched this video a dozen times. Uh, <laughs> number four, uh, for our five practical takeaways. Number four, um, when you go to prayer, maybe, right, we all have uh, little books and devotionals and a chapter of the gospel. Um, but maybe you should carve out about five minutes with no book, bead, or Bible and just sit there and for five minutes say the holy name of Jesus and have an expectant faith that Christ can speak to you back, right? And just give that time over over to him to do what he wants to do, not necessarily what you want to do, right? Five minutes in prayer, say the holy name of Jesus. All right, last thing. Um, a little book that you will enjoy written by Fulton Sheen. 
a master catechist and a great explainer of the faith. It's called The Divine Romance, and it's just an introduction to how Jesus saves us. So it's short. It's like pamphlet-sized, maybe 85 pages. If you've read a Jacques Philippe book, it's it feels kind of similar in your hand. Um, but it just goes through how is it that the Lord gives us grace and what is he doing on the cross? So a super excellent way to understand better how to explain to people the kerygma and to testify what the Lord has already done for them and can do for them in their life. That is awesome. Father Gregory Pine, thank you so much. Um, head over to the thetomisticinstitute.org uh, to find out more information about all the stuff that you're involved in. Um, uh, also, aquinas101.com. Get signed up for those videos or hop on over to YouTube and check them out. They are great. They even have little animations. I like the little animations. Those are great. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I did this with my hands, rocking them back and forth. But uh yeah, it did. It did. It did feel right. Thank you for this extra long episode. Could you close us on a little prayer? A little little Gladly. sent God a P mail. Get it? Prayer. Anyhow. Wow. No one that. No one In the name that. of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Grant us grace, O merciful God, to desire ardently all that is pleasing to Thee, to examine it prudently, to acknowledge it truthfully, and to accomplish it perfectly, for the praise and glory of Thy name, who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Thank you so much for, in 24 hours, <laughs> giving me your time. Hey, my joy. Thanks so much for the invitation. I great. appreciate it.